It's a great joy to welcome all of y'all here tonight. I'm Father Brian. I am sorry to report that my dear friend and brother Justin here is down with COVID tonight. So uh, he sends his greetings. He's very sorry not to be here. Um, he is actually feeling better today, so he will be uh, in fine shape by the end of this week. But uh, I have pressed my lovely and charming daughter, Mary Hollis, into service tonight to ask some questions uh, to kind of get us started with our topic for tonight. So just for those of y'all who are new, uh, there are some QR codes that are scattered around the room. And at any time during the talk, uh, feel free to use the QR code to send a question in. And Ian is a, going to be moderating the questions over here. And as you see questions coming in, you can uh, like the ones that you hope that we will respond to, and that will help rank those. Uh, also, our next Theology on Tap is going to be July the 5th. So after you've had your wonderful celebration for the 4th of July, you can come to Theology on Tap right after that to cap off the celebration. So tonight, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the Bible, which is a book that is obviously very important, not only in the Christian faith, but in Western civilization. And so uh, Justin and I talked about how we were going to do this, and we we're basically going to ask each other questions. Uh, so we've switched it up a little bit. So Mary Hollis is just going to be asking questions, and uh, I will be trying to respond to those. Uh, but remember, when it's time for the question and answer period, feel free, any question about what we've been talking about tonight or anything else, it is all fair game. So what you got? Okay, as he said, I will only be asking the questions. I will not be answering any of them. So our first question for the evening is, where did the book we know as the Bible come from? Okay, so uh, that is a question that a lot of people probably have not thought about very much because the Bible is just sort of a fact of life, you know, that it's out there. Uh, but it's interesting, the Bible as we know it uh, had its origins first with the, what we know today as the Old Testament. And that was a book that was uh, complete and unto itself uh, in the ancient world and uh, was developed sort of in three portions, the Torah, the first five books, the prophets, the next books, and then the writings. The Torah probably about 400 BC, the prophets maybe written down by 200 BC, the other writings maybe around 100 BC, and then after uh, Jesus's life and death and resurrection and ministry, the New Testament was written in very short order after that. So uh, the books of the Bible, there are 39 in the Old Testament, uh, 27 in the New Testament, and they were put together and have existed more or less as what we know today as the Bible since uh, the mid 200s. Uh, there are variations on that, but that's, that's kind of a, a good ballpark date for that. And it's interesting because uh, scholars think there are probably about 40 different authors of these different books that were writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit um, that were written over a period of about 1,500 years. And so it's really quite remarkable that you can trace the story of salvation starting right in the book of Genesis, right through the end of the book of Revelation, 
and it all uh, is part of the same arc and makes sense, uh, which is really quite miraculous. Okay, when was it originally written? Okay, so um, the Old Testament started as oral tradition because there was not papyrus, there was not writing um, other than hieroglyphics carved into stone. Uh, and oral tradition, a lot of times when you say that, people think, well, that's not very reliable. But the fact of the matter is that oral tradition in ancient cultures is actually extremely reliable. Uh, we have lost that tradition in our culture. But one of the things, uh, how many of y'all have ever been to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah? So when you go to that, the person who is the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah recites their Torah portion. And uh, back in the day, as it were, uh, like in Jesus' time and earlier, only boys had the bar mitzvah, but they actually memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And that was just normal back then. So um, oral tradition, much more reliable than we think that it is. Uh, just for example, uh, if I were to say on the night before Christmas, all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a moose, what would you say? Wrong. Wrong, because it's supposed to be what? Mouse. Mouse. Well, that's kind of the way oral tradition works. Things are so familiar that when someone makes a mistake, it will be corrected. And um, because it was the word of God, people were very, very concerned to make sure that they got it correct. So the Torah was written down certainly by 400 BC. Uh, the uh, prophets by 200 BC, and the, you know, they're over a period of time, so they're not all the same date. And then the um, other writings by 100 BC. The New Testament, uh, Jesus was born around uh, somewhere between 3 BC and 1 AD, depending on which calendar system you're working with, and was executed on the cross around 33 AD and rose from the dead in that same year. And the first uh, parts of the New Testament that were written down were probably written down in the 40s. Um, some of Paul's letters are some of the earliest ones we have. I just preached on Galatians this week. Galatians is very reliably dated to 48 AD. Um, the Gospels written between probably around 45 AD for Mark and around 100 AD for the Gospel of John. Um, all of these books, the letters, the Gospels were all individual books. They weren't bound together, but they were all circulating. And uh, the people we know as the church fathers who were bishops and uh, other people in the church, the early church in the first century, they were quoting from these books in their correspondence. And we have that correspondence. Well, obviously, you can't quote from something that hasn't been written down yet. So the books have to be earlier than these letters are. And Clement of Rome was one of the people that was doing a lot of this quoting. He was writing in 96 AD, so um, quoting a lot from Paul's letters. So pretty much all of the New Testament um, was written down by 100 AD and then collected uh, into uh, what we call the canon, uh, which is C-A-N-O-N, -N, not canon like boom boom canon, uh, but collected into the canon uh, and published as one book um, starting in the mid-third century around the 250s. 
Well, this ties in nicely. The question is, what's the difference in the origins of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Okay, so that's a great question. Uh, one of the things about the Old Testament and the New Testament that sometimes people forget is that they were written in different languages. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, um, which is a language that is written in characters, kind of like Chinese or Japanese, uh, that does not have vowels, it's just consonants. Uh, so, say again exactly what... What's the difference in the origins of the Old Testament yes, and the so, New Testament? And these grew out of the Jewish community of faith uh, with the stories of Moses. Um, and Moses is the one that wrote down a lot of the oral tradition that's in the Torah. So the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, that is Moses <coughs> writing a lot of that. Um, Moses is the protagonist in a number of those books. Um, and so that is the earliest part um, other than the book of Job. Book of Job is the other really old book. And so they all came out of the Jewish faith community, mostly coming out of what we know um, in the New Testament period as Judea and Israel. So the Old Testament comes from there. The New Testament comes out of not just the Jewish community, but the Greek um, and Gentile believing community that gathered around Jesus. And that uh, was an interesting group because it was polylingual. So you had people that spoke Hebrew, you had people that spoke Greek, you had people that spoke classical and Koine Greek, which was the marketplace Greek. Uh, you had people that were Romans who spoke Latin. Um, there was a little bit of everything. But the New Testament is almost all written in Koine Greek, which is the sort of marketplace Greek, which is kind of the lingua franca of that time. Is it true that the Bible has been translated multiple times? How do we know it's reliable and not full of copying errors? Okay, so the Bible has been translated many, many, many times. Um, the Old Testament, of course, written in Hebrew, uh, but it was translated into Greek pretty early on. Um, those of you who uh, studied ancient history, does anybody remember where the great library was that was one of the wonders of the ancient world? Yes, Alexandria. So Alexandria, when Alexander started that city, he wanted that library to have all the accumulated wisdom of the world, and he wanted it all to be available in the Greek language. And so he committed money from his empire to help make that happen. So under the reign of Ptolemy, who was one of the successors um, to Alexander, uh, they engaged 70 scholars uh, who were fluent in Greek, and in Biblical Hebrew to translate the Old Testament into Greek. And that's what's called the Septuagint. So that was the first translation. So it was translated into Greek. Um, the New Testament uh, was written, as I just said before, in Koine Greek originally. And then all of it was very quickly uh, translated into other languages, the New Testament first, into Syriac and a lot of other Middle Eastern languages and then very in short order after that into Latin, and then the complete Old and New Testament were both translated into Latin in the fifth century by St. Jerome, and that is a version called the Vulgate. And that version is what stayed uh, in the Western world. That was the main version of the Bible that was used. And it became very controversial because no one spoke Latin except for priests, uh, aristocrats and nobles and kings and certain people in universities. 
So the vast majority of people, 90%, could not speak Latin. And so during this period, there were some horrible abuses that happened where people um, in positions of power would say, God's word says that you must X, Y, Z. And people didn't know any better. And so people used the Bible as a way of um, exerting power on people. And it was actually punishable by death to translate the Bible out of Latin. But there were some brave men in England, uh, Wycliffe and Tyndale and some other people, um, who began translating into English um, Lefebvre de Tafla in France, Martin Luther in Germany, um, translating the Bible into English, French, and German. And it's continued to be translated over and over again since then. However, um, you might think that that would mean there were lots of errors that have been introduced. And uh, you will hear a lot of people today say that. Uh, but it's actually not true. And a lot of the people that said that uh, the Bible was full of all these mistakes from translating and copying uh, were very prominent at the beginning of the 20th century. And then at the end of World War II, there was this huge archaeological discovery that was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls um, were manuscript scrolls of the Old Testament that dated a thousand years earlier than any manuscript that we had. And so a lot of the revisionist scholars said, well, this is going to be great because we're going to be able to show now that these original scrolls compared to the ones that were translated that the church has been using, that they're hugely different. Well, unfortunately for the liberal scholars, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a slam dunk for people talking about the reliability of scripture. The Book of Kings, I don't know how many of you read First and Second Kings. Uh, it is a long book. It's full of all sorts of names and battles and all of that. The Masoretic text from the 10th century AD and the scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls from about 150 BC, you go through all of that. There's not one consonant that's different. The odds of that, according to one person, are like 1 in 750 billion. And the way the Masoretes, the Masoretes were scribes that copied these manuscripts, and they believed it was the very word of God, so they were very careful. And before they copied a manuscript, they would go through and they would count how many characters were in the whole manuscript. And they would have multiple people do this to make sure they knew how many. And then what they would do, they would make a copy, and they would have other people count exactly to the halfway point in the original and say that was the character for H. And then they would count in the copy, and if the halfway point was not the letter H, they threw it out and started over again. So very, very, very accurate. Um, any discrepancies that they are spelling changes like color in England is C-O-L-O-U-R. Uh, there's some things like that, but nothing that matters in terms of uh, the authority of the text. That sounds like quite a tedious job to have yes, to indeed. count every yes, character. Yes, if you think your job is soul-sucking, imagine counting characters. <laughs> okay, who decided which books went into the Bible? Um, some people would just say God, uh, but <laughs> although that is probably true on one level, uh, the perhaps more accurate uh, way of answering that would be that the believing community, first in the Old Testament, um, understood certain books, the books of Moses, the Torah, um, the prophets, to be the literal word of God and the writings. And so 
the rabbis and priests of that time period are the ones that put their stamp on the Old Testament. And that was um, a very defined uh, collection of books. In Jesus' day, uh, that collection of books had been uh, what we call canonical, the, the accepted order um, for over 200 years. So the New Testament, uh, remember each of these books was written separately, each gospel, each epistle, they were all circulating separately, but they were um, evaluated by the apostles and their successors, the 12 apostles um, and St. Paul. Um, they were evaluated by them as to uh, a couple of criteria. So they're mostly looked at in terms of a fancy word, apostolicity. And basically what that means is that the, the book was written by one of Jesus's apostles or told by one of Jesus's apostles to someone else and that it was reduced to writing during the lifespan of eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry. So that way if anything strange was written, there would be somebody that could con contradict it. So anything that was written after people that were alive during Jesus's ministry was automatically not accepted. But it was very clear early on uh, that these letters from Paul were uh, considered to be at the same level as the Old Testament. Uh, and then also the four gospels were very quickly taken to be at the same level uh, as the Old Testament, that is, being the Word of God. And that was all pretty much decided by around 100 AD. They were collected and published together starting in the middle of the third century and then ratified by the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. How do you interpret the Bible? What about taking it literally? Okay, so that's a great question and you hear all sorts of people talking about how you interpret the Bible. Uh, one of the things about that is you hear people a lot of times getting into arguments about taking the Bible literally. And it all depends on what you mean by taking the Bible literally. So uh, one of the famous passages in the New Testament, Jesus says to his disciples, and he's talking about sin being something that is really serious. He says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better for you to go into hell with one hand, go into heaven with one hand than to be thrown into hell with both. And then he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Um, do we have any record of Jesus' disciples cutting off their hands or plucking out their eyes? No. Y'all should know that. That's important. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't have any record of that. And the reason for that is that Jesus did not mean that literally. He's using a uh, device in language that is called exaggeration for effect, which has the fancy name of hyperbole. And when you look in the scriptures, there are all different kinds of literature in there. There's some that's historical narrative. There's some that's poetry. Um, there's some that's allegory. Uh, there is some that is moral instruction. Uh, there's hyperbole. There's just a lot of different types. So I think the best way to think about interpreting scripture is to interpret it according to the type of literature that it is and to consider the context. People very frequently pull scripture out of context and then try to build a case for some point of view on it. And that is misunderstanding the Bible. In fact, in the Anglican Church, in our Articles of Religion, 
uh, which is sort of our doctrinal statement. It says uh, one of the principles of scriptural interpretation is that no section of scripture shall be interpreted so as to be repugnant to another. In other words, that you can't, we do not believe the Bible contradicts itself, and that what you need to do to understand scripture is to use other scripture to help interpret it. How important is the Bible? Uh, well, yeah, I think you can say the Bible is the most important book in the history of the human race. Uh, not just for Christians, it is the most important book in terms of influencing Western civilization, um, the ideas that have made their way into governments. Uh, it is all over literature um, for 2,000 years. Um, every song on the playlist tonight uh, either quotes the Bible directly or is about the Bible. It is hugely important. And obviously for Christians, um, it is particularly important because we view it not only as the word of God, but as being deeply connected with Jesus himself. Jesus in the prologue of John's Gospel um, is referred to as the Word of God with a capital W. And Jesus talks about the role of the Holy Spirit by saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance all of the word that I have spoken to you. So it is the central thing for the Christian faith. Okay, that's that all I've end? got. Ian, how are we looking on questions? We have plenty of questions. All right. Let's give Mary Hollis a hand for us stepping in. First question. What are your thoughts on trying to read the Bible in a year? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, first, I will tell a story on myself. Uh, when I first came to faith, um, which was when right before my freshman year in college, I knew I was supposed to read the Bible, and so I decided I was going to read the Bible. And you know, my friends who were Christians were like, oh, the Lord spoke to me through the Bible. I was like, this is awesome. So I started reading in Genesis, and I was like, this is pretty good. And I got to Exodus, and I was like, yeah, this is still pretty good. Then I got to Leviticus, and I was like, huh. And I made it to the end of Leviticus, and then I started into Deuteronomy, and I was like, Clearly, there's something wrong with me. Um, I don't understand this. It is not blessing me. It's not making me excited about my walk with the Lord. Um, I just must really be a sinner and messed up, and I just kind of gave up. So that is not the way to read the Bible in a year or any other time. Um, I am actually doing a read the Bible in one year thing right now that's an app. Uh, but it is great because it takes you through a New Testament passage, an Old Testament passage, part of a psalm, um, and it is, it is tremendously helpful. So I think reading through the Bible in a, year, in a year is a great goal, but don't try to start at the beginning and then work straight through to the end. That, that is not a helpful way of doing it. The app that I'm using is from uh, Holy Trinity Brompton uh, in London. Uh, Nicky Gumbel, who started the Alpha Course, he and his wife do this uh, Bible in a year. You can subscribe to it. It comes to your email. Really great. Little commentary. Good stuff. Great question. What are your thoughts on the extra biblical texts, such as the Book of Enoch and the Gospel of Thomas? Yes. 
Uh, oh, I could talk for hours about this. Um, the Book of Enoch and the Gospel of Thomas are both uh, what we would call Gnostic Gospels. Uh, these are works that were written later, uh, and they do not meet the criterion of apostolicity that we talked about earlier. Um, they're later books, and one of the things that, and y'all are too young to remember this, has anybody in here ever heard of the Da Vinci Code? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's pretty impressive. Good job on knowing your older stuff. Um, the Da Vinci Code came out and said, oh, there are all these other books that are out there, and the church like suppressed all these other books so that they could put in these particular books to establish the Catholic Church and make this evil patriarchy to dominate the world. And a lot of people just totally believed it. And it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the, the dating of these books and you look at the manuscripts of them, one of the things when, you, when you're looking at whether a book is reliable, whether it's the Bible or um, Caesar's Gallic Wars or Plutarch's Lives, whatever it is, what you want to do is you want to look at not only how many old manuscripts there are, but you want to look at when were the events taking place that the writing is about, and how long after those events was the writing actually made, and then how close to when the writing was first made do the earliest manuscripts come from. And when you use that kind of test, things like Enoch and Thomas and all of that don't really fit very well. The books that are extra biblical um, but are included in the Apocrypha are a little bit different. Those are books that are from the Old Testament period, and they were seen by the Jews as being useful for instruction, but not being at the same level as the other books of the Old Testament. So um, there are some terrific resources up here if you're interested in this topic. Um, this particular one is just about the New Testament. Can we trust the Gospels? Uh, I will tell you, this book changed my life. I was already completely convinced of the historicity of the Gospels. And then I read this, and I was so convinced that I wanted to go talk to people on the street corner about it. Um, Peter Williams, not the one who's Charlotte's um, husband. Uh, Peter Williams is a genius on the level of C.S. Lewis. Uh, in his mid-40s, the warden at Tyndale House, which is one of the colleges at Cambridge. He's the head of the International Greek New Testament Project. Uh, he was one of the lead translators for um, the English Standard Version of the Bible, which many scholars consider the authoritative translation. And he has done this remarkable um, analysis, not only of the manuscripts, but he looks at things like special knowledge about places and um, idioms, like people from Charleston, if you're from, how many of y'all are from Charleston? So if, if I said to you, somebody from off, um, you wouldn't know what that meant. If we were in Akron, Ohio, and I said to people, someone from off, they would just look at me like I had two heads. They would have no idea what that meant. Well, there are tons of things like that in the New Testament. And they are all things that are specific, particularly to Galilee, um, where Jesus and his disciples were. Um, the names that are used, the knowledge of the geography is absolutely astounding. So if you only read one book in the next six months, I would make a strong argument you might want it to be this one. It's really good. All right, sorry, that was a long answer. 
How do we reconcile the Old and New Testament in terms of what that means for how we worship? That is a great question. So the Old Testament and the New Testament have some things in common about worship. They have other things that are very different. So one of the things that is in common between the Old Testament and the New Testament that unfortunately, I think a lot of times in the modern church we lose sight of this, one of the things that is very clear in both of them is the holiness of God and the importance of reverence and worship um, that it can be joyful, but that there's a, a, you have to understand the holiness of God. And that is imbued in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the role of singing is imbued in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the structure of modern liturgical worship like we do in the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, um, that comes out of Old Testament temple worship. Um, a lot of the structure comes out of that. So there are many continuities. The main thing that is different is that in the Old Testament, one aspect of worship always involved sacrifice for sins and sacrifice that was built around particular feasts of the Jewish year. And all of that in the New Testament, all of those are subsumed into Jesus. And Jesus satisfied the requirements for all of those sacrifices by his death on the cross and his resurrection. So those have faded away. But the, the idea of confession of sin, uh, proclamation of forgiveness, proclamation of the word of God, praising God, reverence and holiness, all of those are characteristics of both Old and New Testament worship. Great question. How do you explain instances in the Gospels where there are no eyewitnesses to the events, like Jesus in the 40 days of fasting in the desert? Yes, that's another great question. Uh, there are a number of instances where Jesus is by himself, and then these are recorded in the Gospels. And the reason for that is that uh, when you read the Gospels, uh, and one of the things I would encourage you to do, if you've never sat down and read a Gospel all the way through in one sitting, please do that. Um, if you really want to go whole hog, um, you can read all four in one sitting. They're not really that long, um, because they were originally written as a whole piece. There were no verses, there were no chapters, it was just one story. And Jesus, one of the things you'll see, when Jesus called his 12 disciples, they were with each other for three years, morning, noon, and night. They were living together, working together, traveling together, eating together. And so almost all scholars are agreed that every instance that we have of something like Jesus's temptation, uh, where he was alone, that he recounted that to his disciples during the time that they were walking or during meals or whatever, and that they remembered that and it stuck with them and then it was written down. I don't completely agree with the theology of my church. Should I be looking for a new church or should I have a certain amount of tolerance for that? <laughs> uh, that is also a really good question. Uh, there's, a, there's an old joke that says, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because as soon as you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, theology is not an exact science. And so I would say that 
it is important to major in the majors and not worry so much about the minors. There's an old saying that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. So I think it is very important um, to only go to a church that proclaims Jesus Christ as the only incarnate Son of God who was crucified on the cross for our sins and rose bodily and then ascended into heaven and a church that believes that the scripture is the word of God. I think beyond that, there, there are doctrines and things that are important, but uh, those are the most important things. I would say if there's something that's troubling you, that if it's on your conscience, that there's a doctrine that you have trouble with, it would be really good to go and talk to the clergy person or pastor of that church and express your concern or questioning about that and then see how they respond to it. What do you think of retellings of the gospel stories such as the TV show, The Chosen? Uh, I am one of those people who doesn't like to comment on things that I haven't watched or read. Um, I have not watched The Chosen, so I don't really know. Um, I do think that there is a role for what I would call reverent retellings of the gospel in different media. Um, I think Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is a really good example of that. Um, it is not specifically biblical. Um, some of the dialogue is right out of the scriptures, but other scenes of it are imagined. But I think it is consonant um, with what you see in the scriptures. It is profoundly moving, and it focuses you on the reality of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. So I think anything that leads you closer and widens the net, as it were, to help draw people in can be good. Um, but I think you have to be careful because it is um, really easy to cross the line and do things that are, that are not helpful. What are your thoughts on the book of Esther since it never mentions God directly in the book? Uh, I think the book of Esther is a terrific book. Um, I would commend you to study it. Uh, although it may not mention God specifically, it is uh, very clear that God is being prayed to and that God is acting through the people in that book. Uh, it is also one of the great books that, uh, and people miss this today, but one of the remarkable things about Judaism and about Christianity was how in a culture that absolutely viewed women as chattel, uh, that women were elevated. The idea that there could be an ancient religion with a book named after a woman like Esther, um, and then the book of Ruth, I mean, all of these kinds of things are remarkable for their time period. And there's a great um, theological lesson in the book of Esther in the way that God comes against the kingdoms of this world and redeems his chosen people in a way that is quite miraculous. Why did Martin Luther want to get rid of James? Quote, Epistle of Straw. And why wasn't he successful? Were there other books considered for removal during the Reformation? That is a great question. Um, I love that quotation from Martin Luther, and depending on which translator you get, um, the version of it I usually hear is that he called James a right straw epistle. Um, but, 
Martin Luther didn't like the book of James, uh, and so I say tough beans uh, to him, uh, because he was not in charge. And uh, the church throughout all the early New Testament period saw the book of James as being entirely part of the New Testament canon. And I think part of it was that Luther was reacting against some abuses in the church during that time period, and he overreacted to some of James's theology. I think actually the book of James does not teach works righteousness. Um, Luther saw it that way, but I think it's very difficult to read it fairly and come across that. Um, there have been controversies about various books of the Bible and various points of time, um, but the, the fact of the way the New Testament was put together has held such weight over time that really none of those efforts have succeeded very well. Um, there are a lot of people uh, in the modern day that not only want to get rid of certain books, but they want to take the Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible. I don't know if y'all know this, but Jefferson, who had many wonderful qualities, also had many other qualities that were not so great. And he didn't like a lot of what was in the New Testament in particular. So he just went through his Bible and cut out or marked out the parts that he didn't like and just kept the ones that he did like. Well, that is not... Uh, a healthy approach to dealing with scripture. Why did biblical knowledge become so widespread in Western civilization? Besides that, church and state were not always so separate in history as in the modern USA. Yes, that is another great question. I could talk about this for hours, but I will not do that. Um, what, what I would say about that is that one of the reasons that the Bible became so central um, to every aspect of civilization, whatever culture it went into, was that it resonates with people in terms of its description of reality. Um, that people read these stories, particularly the New Testament, um, read these stories and they find them compelling, they feel that they describe their experience, they feel that they can relate to them, which is, that's one of the remarkable things about the Bible, is you can see um, the Bible, for example, went into Ethiopia really, really early, um, you know, probably by the fourth century AD, deeply implanted in Ethiopia, and had a huge impact on Ethiopian culture. Well, that same book had a huge impact on culture in England, and had a huge impact on culture in uh, the Christian parts of Germany. So, you know, it's, it's remarkable that it had that impact. And that impact shows up not just in the moral fabric of those cultures, but in the literature of those cultures, the music and art of those cultures all around the world. So it's clearly not just that it's being imposed by the state. It's because it resonates. Um, and I would say that's because it's truth with a capital T. If you believe that God made us, um, that God's word describes our reality with capital R. How could the Bible be against abortion when that didn't even exist at that time? That is a great question as well. Um, people, some people would say that the Bible doesn't speak about abortion or it doesn't come down one way or the other. Um, I would disagree with that because, again, I think you have to take... Uh, all of scripture together to understand it. And one of the things that is very, very clear 
in the scriptures is that God is the author of life and that God is the one who creates each life. And when you look uh, in the Psalms and you see um, the psalmist saying um, on God's behalf, well, you were still in your mother's womb, I knew you, um, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, all of those kinds of things. It's very clear, and it's also clear in the um, Old Testament law that it was uh, believed that life began when the woman was pregnant. So if a pregnant woman, um, if you did something that caused her to lose her baby, that was murder. So that is very clear. Um, you can do some parsing of words about the New Testament. I mean, the, the Ten Commandments about um, thou shalt do no murder, what does that mean? But it's very clear that the taking of life is something that is very much condemned um, throughout the scripture. So um, although the word abortion is not used, um, the word taking, taking of life the understanding of when life begins is quite clear. Maccabees is canonical for the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church, but not for us. Is it God-breathed inspired teaching? Uh, that would depend on who you ask. Um, so I would say that it is uh, a book that is uh, full of wisdom and is instructive, but I would not say that it is on the same level as the Old Testament and the New Testament. That would be the position of the Anglican Church on that. Different churches have different views about that. Um, Maccabees is something that we talk about in church. We talk about Judas Maccabeus. Uh, we sing uh, things from Handel's Oratorio about that. Um, it is, there's some very good history in that book, but we do not see it at the same level as the Old Testament or the New Testament, although the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic Church do. As a practical matter, um, it doesn't really make lots of difference. Do you prefer the Byzantine majority text or the Alexandria text family? I would say I am indifferent among those options. What is and should be the Christian response to Pride Month? That is also a great question. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can say about that. But the first thing that I would say is that our first understanding needs to be about identity and how God created people. Um, the clear teaching of scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God created uh, man and woman in his image and that men and women reflect the image of God and that the only place that is uh, a place for expression of sexual activity is within heterosexual marriage. And that has been from the beginning of the Old Testament right through all of the New Testament and really through most of modern culture until the past 50 years or so. And so that has been the view of the church. Now, in our culture today, where we believe that um, identity is something that you create for yourself rather than something that's given to you by God, um, that is seen as very repressive and um, 
judgmental and all of those kinds of things. But I think for us as Christians, our first response for people who are struggling with what we would consider to be sexual sin is to have compassion for them, to understand that all of us struggle with sin, although it may be different types of sin, to have compassion for them, to try to love them as Jesus would. Jesus did not call people to have to change before they started following him. He called them to follow him and then to begin to change. So I think it's important that we not come across as hating people who are made in God's image. And I think it's all too easy for the church to come across that way. At the same time, we cannot condone and celebrate pride. Um, One of the ironic things about the name of the Pride Month is that um, and we've lost sight of this in the modern church, but uh, in the old uh, taxonomy of sin, of the seven deadly sins, pride is the worst sin that there is. Um, pride is the sin that you see in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve saying, we want to be like God, not the sense of emulating his character, but we want to be God, we want to be in control. So I think... Um, a proper Christian response is to be sad about it, um, to not embrace events celebrating it. But if you have friends who are gay or who are struggling with their sexual identity, to love them, to invest in a relationship with them, to invite them to church, to give them good things to read, and to pray for them without ceasing. Could you shed some light on what the Bible says about the role of women in marriage? Yes. Uh, So the Bible says a lot about the role of women in marriage, and also a lot about the role of men in marriage. And uh, one of the things that you will often hear is people will come to you and say, well, how could you believe the Bible? Because it says women should be barefooted, pregnant, and stay in the kitchen, Um, and that they must submit to their husbands. And the husband like keeps the wife like a slave. How could you? Well, of course, that is not what Scripture says. And if you read Ephesians 5 and 6, well, really, you have to read the whole book of Ephesians. But when it's talking about the duties of husbands and wives, one of the things it says is that husbands and wives are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is, that both of them see Christ as the head. Women who are married to Christian husbands are instructed to submit to them, um, which does not mean slavish obedience, but what it does mean is that when there has to be a decision made and there's a difference of opinion that can't be resolved, that the woman should agree to trust her husband. But at the same breath as the wife is being told that, husbands are being told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her, i.e. the husband needs to be willing to lay down his life, to literally die on the cross for his wife, to love her self-sacrificially. So if both of them are doing that, there's not going to be an issue about that. So that's one of the chief texts. But the Bible also talks about the beauty of marriage. It talks about Um, the love between husband and wife, Um, and it talks about how that is God's intention going back 
to um, the book of Genesis uh, that people who are called to be married, that there's a beautiful complementarity of men and women. Men and women are not the same. They are both in the image of God, but they are not the same, and they are both needed to complete the image of God. All right, we got time probably for one more. One more. Do you believe that the Bible should be beside? I'm sorry. Do you believe the Bible should be cited more in current political discourse? That is a great question. Um, I would say yes and no. Uh, I think one of the things that is unfortunate today is that when the Bible is used in political discourse, it's usually misused. Uh, if you, going back to that uh, question we had earlier about Jesus' temptation, uh, if you will remember the story of Jesus' temptation, Satan comes to Jesus when he is in the wilderness, and he quotes scripture to Jesus to try to tempt him. He takes scripture out of context and tries to use it for ends that were not what God intended. And I think that very often happens in politics. But I think that particularly when you are um, in a political situation in a country where most people are not Christians, it is not always helpful to cite the Bible. It all depends on how you do it. I think that it can be helpful in some circumstances in showing what the, the basis of moral law is. Like I think citing the Ten Commandments um, can be very appropriate um, in political discussions uh, on the right sorts of topics. But I think you have to be careful to not try to use the Bible as a club to beat on people with. So with that, uh, we will stop. Uh, thank you all. Those were great questions. Uh, the ones we didn't get to, we'll go into the question hopper uh, for the next time that we do the, uh, the questions cut off by the buzzer night, uh, which will be later this summer. So thank you all so much for coming. Next time, July the 5th, Justin will be back by then, and so it will be both of us. So thank you all for coming. Please feel free to hang out and eat some pizza. If you are not on our mailing list, uh, please, um, there's a little QR code on the bottom there, not the question one, but the other one. If you do that, that will take you to our sign-up, and that way we can keep in touch with you about future events. Thanks so much.